Hello, everybody. Dr. Joe Vitale here with another Hypnotic Gold interview for Hypnotic Gold members only. And you better strap yourself in because I have a rip-roaring, hilarious interview coming up that's educational entertainment. What am I talking about? Well, I don't know yet. Let's find out as we get into this. My guest today, which I'm going to ask him just to uh, clear his throat or something so I know he's actually on the call. Are you there? <clears throat> Oh, this he's is, there. This is oh. your rip-roaring, hilarious guest here, Dr. Joe. <laughs> You're off to a good start. All Thank right, you. I got Sir John Hargrave, the king of dot comedy, on the line. He's the editor-in-chief of Zug, which is at www.zug.com, zug.com. You're going to want to go there later, and I'll give that out again later. It's the world's longest-running humor website. Get that, the world's longest-running humor website. His comedy book has been featured in the New York Times, USA Today, Entertainment Weekly, the Boston Globe, and Business Week. He has made appearances on, look at this, my favorite shows, Comedy Central, The Tonight Show with Jay Leno, MSNBC, G4 TV, and the BBC. He's a frequent speaker at technology conferences and wacky morning radio shows across the nation. In February of 2007, his first book was published, Prank the Monkey, and I found that book. I was one of the first to review it on my blog. It's a collection of his greatest pranks. The book also featured hilarious new stunts on society's biggest and most deserving targets, from Starbucks to spammers, from Madonna to Charles Manson, proving that one person can still make a monkey out of the man. Oh, this gets even better. Recently, in June 2009, his next book, Mischief Maker's Manual, was published. It's a book for children. Now, I'm not sure why he wants children to do mischief, but it's a definitive guide to pranks and practical jokes for kids ages 8 and up. The Mischief Maker's Manual, which is also on MP3, instantly became a bestseller, shooting to number one on Amazon Children's Humor Bestseller List. So why am I interviewing this guy? Why do we want to talk about pranks and humor? Why is his website the world's longest-running humor website? We're going to find that out as I interview Sir John Hargrove, who's from Boston. And my first question is, the man's from Boston. What's, what's the deal with the Sir John? <laughs> well, uh, there's a quick funny story behind that, uh, Dr. Joe. You know, I'm, I'm big into pranking uh, the biggest targets that mm. I can find. And uh, I wanted to prank the Queen of England. Uh, and the idea behind the prank was... Now, that's uh, thinking big. I, yeah, exactly. You don't get any bigger, right? Right. And uh, I wanted to uh, change my name from John Hargrave to Sir John Hargrave because I just thought it sounded classier. <laughs> and uh, I wrote the Queen, and I said, uh, would you please knight me? And, you know, the Queen's people wrote me back and said, uh, sorry, you have to do something honorable to get uh, a knighthood. And they haven't seen your first book, apparently. Yeah, that wasn't going to happen. So <laughs> I, uh, I basically went to my local county courthouse, and I filed a change of name petition, which you can do for a couple hundred dollars, and went before a judge and had my name legally changed. And so there you have it. Now it's on all my books and everything. I'm Sir John Hargrave. That's how you did it. Yeah, and then I, I called the queen later to kind of tell her, you know, uh, uh, I, I went ahead and changed my name anyway, and I talked to the Buckingham Palace uh, PR people, uh-huh. and they said, uh, yeah, we could actually uh, <laughs> arrest you if you ever set foot in England calling yourself Sir John Hargrave. Really? Yeah, so I guess I, I shouldn't go to England 
Yeah, yeah stay yeah. home and continue writing your books and your your comedy and so forth, right. and entertaining us here. Uh, and they can be entertained online, of course, at your website, zug.com. Well, i got to point out, you know, that pranks have a long history with me. I'm a disciple of P.T. Barnum. I wrote a book on Barnum. There's a customer born every minute. The I master. Pulled, yes, the master. He was the father of it. Yeah. Uh, pulled some great ones. Fiji Mermaid, even General Tom Thun began as a prank. Uh, the uh, Joyce Heth, the world's uh, oldest nurse to George Washington. I mean, the list goes on. And yeah. I've done them myself. I've done the Canine Concert, which was the first rock concert for dogs only, and it was That's played right, with Alan Abel, right? And with Alan Abel, who you know or know of, my one of my heroes. Yes. So well, then you know he helped me pull the great Lotto hoax, where we faked winning the largest lotto in history, which was the, brilliant. Will you tell us that story real quick? Because I read about it, you know, mm-hmm. little anecdotes. But will you just tell it real quick? Jeff? Yeah, I have a DVD that's an actual documentary that covers the whole thing, which I can send you. It's called Humbug. It's listed on my website at Mr. Fire for anybody listening that wants to know. The short story is I've been a big fan of Alan Abel because I thought he was a living P.T. Barnum. He knew yeah. about publicity. He knew about publicists. He knew about hoaxing. And I went to him, and I said, what can you do to help me promote my book, The Attractor Factor? And it was already a bestseller. That's the book that got me into the movie The Secret, but I wanted to go even bigger. He thought about it for months, and he came up with this master strategy where he and a team of people would pretend to win the lottery. And he wanted to wait until it was really noteworthy, not just a few million, but up there. And when it got to the largest amount in U.S. history, which was around $370 million for the Super Lotto, he and his gang of pranksters came out and in a small city, and I forget what city, what country or state it was in, and pretended to have won. And they pretended to have won secretly. I mean, they went into a diner and they bought everybody uh, food, and they whispered to the manager, don't tell anybody, but the guy buying everybody food here just won the lottery, but we don't want the word to get out. <laughs> Which, of course, is how the word gets out. Yeah. And, and then the media descends on it, and it's all over the news. Front page articles were being done. And when they interviewed the fake winner of the lotto, and they would say, how did you pick the numbers? And he said, well, it was the strangest thing. I was reading this book called The Attractor Factor, <laughs> and I just flipped through, and I would pick page numbers. And th- that's how I got my book promoted. Now, <laughs> investigative journalists traced it back to me, and I got a call from a reporter who was upset. And he said, why'd you do it? Why'd you fake winning the lottery? And in that moment, divine inspiration spoke to me because I said it was easier to fake it than to actually win it. (laughs) And like you, he loved it. He loved it. And he wrote a front page story about this whole scene. And so that was the story of the Humbug DVD and faking winning the lotto. And it didn't last all that long because these days they can trace who actually won it and uh, found that original person, and they come out, and, you know, the, the joke is up. But that was an Alan Abel stunt, and Alan was also behind the canine concert, which is what I used to promote my P.T. Barnum book a few years ago in Austin, where I had a rock band play music at a level humans couldn't hear, right, but right. was designed for dogs to hear. And, of course, it was all a prank. Yeah. So this is why I love you and your book, and I couldn't wait to talk to you. Prank the Monkey is full of these kind of things. Those, I, that, those are great stories, and I'm glad to hear them firsthand from you. I collect that kind of thing, and that's very much what, what I do and what we do on my website, Zug.com. 
Um, but but what why I love do you do it? The, this is what's going to be interesting to everybody. I mean, I can say there was a couple of marketing reasons for it for me, but you've made a career of this, and you've got the longest-running website doing this. You've got books doing this. Now you're teaching kids to do this. What, what's the point? Why are you doing this? Well, um, Joe, I think uh, pranking is very important for society. Uh, so there's actually a serious message behind this. I don't usually uh, talk about this much because I'm the <laughs> wacky pranks guy. But I really think that pranking is important because it teaches us that reality can be manipulated. Mm. And I think that's where there's an overlap in our, in our messages, you and I. Um, mm-hmm. Because both of us are teaching people not to accept the given reality, right? Because that reality yeah. can always be changed. Now, that, gr- that's deep. <laughs> uh, I wouldn't expect you to say this to John Stewart on The Daily Show on Comedy Central. This, this is... This is deeper than where I thought you would be going. Uh, yeah. but, to, to, but it sounds like Alan Abel. Alan Abel says he does his pranks as a social commentary. Right. Now, yours sounds even deeper than that, though, because reality can be manipulated. Tell me more about that. Give me some examples or, of what you're trying to say here. There's, there's a good example at the beginning of the new book, Mischief Maker's Manual, um, where uh, I tell the story of the students at the Massachusetts Institute of Technology uh, who managed to put a police car, like a campus police car, on the top of this giant dome building. They call it the Great Dome. And it's this 250-foot, just massive domed structure uh, in the middle of campus. And these brilliant engineering students found a way to uh, put the car, take an entire police car and get it up there. And there's no way up there except a tiny trap door. But they figured out a way to disassemble it, pull it together piece by piece up there. So That's for all amazing the people in itself. Who, for all the people who saw this prank that morning, it was this funny, uh, creative, uh, non-harmful prank that really jolted them out of their given reality for a few seconds. Mm. And it kind of reminded everybody, as all great pranks do when, they see these, when we see these things, that we don't have to accept the reality uh, that's handed to us. And most of us do. You know, most of us uh, are handed our reality by some authority figure, you know, our parents or, mm. um, you know, the, uh, society, maybe, you know, science, religion, business. But we don't have to. We all have the power, I believe, within us to look at something and say, hey, you know, we can do this differently. And pranks are a symbolic way, a funny way of kind of reminding people of that fact, of reminding them. Uh, that, that you don't have to accept the way things are. You can change it. So this is a very deep metaphysical message here. So I understand that you've, you've told me before this interview that you have a five-step formula you use, and is this for creating pranks, or is this for getting the metaphysical message out? Um, well, I would say my, my formula, uh, which, you know, I don't, I don't usually talk about this aspect of what I do, but mm-hmm. uh, my formula is for, you know, achieving goals and for, um, for accomplishing things that um, I'm trying to accomplish. Oh, we definitely want to hear that because you've accomplished a lot here. And I want to hear more about these. There's so much to talk to you about. I want to hear a couple good pranks that you've, you're proud of where they got really a lot of attention. I want to find out how you got the web, your website to be the world's longest-running humor site and you get so much traffic. Uh, I want to find out how you got on the, the Comedy Central. I mean, there's so many questions. And maybe your five-step formula answers a lot of these. 
Yeah, I think so. Um, you know, I think that uh, for me, what you need to do, first of all, is decide what you want to do. So, mm -hmm. you know, a lot of those are good examples. Um, being a comedy writer was one of my earliest dreams and what I really wanted to achieve. And you have to set that goal and you have to, I think, you know, write it down. You have to make it tangible. You have to make it black and white. If you don't write it down, you know, your goal will, mm -hmm. uh, you'll, you'll never be able to tell if you've achieved a goal. Mm. Um, so that's kind of the first step. The second step is believing that you can achieve it. So mm. that's the old faith. That's just, you know, telling yourself again and again until you really do believe it that you can do this thing that you want to do, whether it's starting your own business, being a comedy writer, publishing a book, uh, you know, doing a master's program, mm -hmm. whatever it is, you really have to believe that. Just tell yourself again and again. Um, then the third step that, that I've found useful is to make a plan for how you're going to get there. So mm -hmm. you have to say, okay, here's what I'm going to do. It's got to be a practical, workable plan that's going to take you from where you are now to where you want to be. And the plan isn't always right, but getting a plan down, putting it in writing, it, discussing it with people, that's really key. Then the fourth step um, is executing to the plan. So you have to do the stuff that you say you're going to mm -hmm. do. And you have to go out and actually try to put the plan into action, make it work. And the fifth step is the persistence, or the, I call it the lather, rinse, and repeat, where you have to look at how things are working, how your plan is working, and then you have to continually just be going back, keeping your eyes on that goal that you originally set for yourself, believing that you can do it, and re reworking the plan as you need to and as you go along, but always persisting uh, and believing that you, you can achieve these things. And that's what I've used. It's been really successful for me, and uh, you know, it's, it's been responsible for all those things you just mentioned. So the first step is to set a goal but also write it down. The second is to believe that what you're planning to do is possible for you. The third is to create a plan of action the fourth is to actually take action on that plan, execute it. And the fifth is <clears throat> persistence while it sounds like getting feedback and monitoring what you're doing, yes. but staying, staying on course. Yes, what do you think? Can I sell a DVD series on this? <laughs> well, if you had to uh, turn all of these, and this is a good point, if, if you turn all of those five steps into comedy, so in other words, don't just tell me to set a goal and, and write the goal, but tell me in a funny way mm -hmm. with, uh, with a story, with a prank, with something. This then becomes unique to you. Now I'm kind of putting my marketing hat on here and answering your question, question from an entrepreneurial standpoint. Because all five steps we've heard before, but when you communicate them through your personality filter and you as a comedy writer and published author – convey this, you now have something that's unique. So the prank way to set and achieve goals might be more unique than just your way to set and achieve goals. For example, can you bring all five of these steps to life by talking about how you became a comedy writer and published author? Yes. See, that's why you're Mr. Fire. Look at that. Look at that brilliance. You just pulled that. We didn't plan that ahead of time. You just pulled that out right now. I'm just listening and responding, Amazing. <laughs> but thank you. Um, yeah. So how did you become a comedy writer? Uh, well, you know, it started out uh, after college. I, I, I did the usual 
routine of trying to write TV producers and networks and hmm. get my foot in the door, and that went nowhere. <laughs> Nobody wanted anything to do with me. Hmm. And at that time, this little thing called the World Wide Web was just starting <laughs> up. Nobody knew about it. Uh, and I started this website, Zug.com, to uh, basically showcase the writings uh, of me and, and my funny friends. And so it was kind of a, a comedy hangout, a place for us just to put our funny writing out there. And I just kept at it, and I really kept plugging away, Joe. And I think mm. that was first. Uh, the first thing I really learned from running the website was um, it, you just, you know, 90% of the battle is just showing up. It's just coming in every day, continuing to do it, mm. continuing to do that thing you love. And for me, it's been a very slow, gradual evolution um, into the success. It hasn't been something where I had necessarily a big break at any point, but it was more just a slow, gradual building. Now, having said that, things do happen and opportunities mm -hmm. certainly come up that I would say, you know, were kind of moments that I can look at. One of them was um, I had written a piece called The Credit Card Prank, and the idea behind this piece was, you know, nobody checks your signature anymore on credit cards, and mm. you've got to sign your receipt all the time, but nobody actually looks at the signature, so why mm -hmm. are we signing it? So I did this series of experiments where I just signed ridiculous names to my credit card receipts, like <laughs> Zeus and um, Shamu, and I drew a little picture of a whale, uh -huh. uh, and Beethoven, and so forth. And then I scanned all these in, and I, I made a, a, uh, a feature out of this, this credit card prank. And... For some reason, even though that was similar to the <laughs> hundred other articles I had written before, this one just really captured the public's fancy. It got linked from a prominent site, and from there it really just took off, and that became our first really big viral hit. Mm. So it just kind of spread around the Internet like wildfire, and I think that was a real turning point for us. Well, you tied it into current news. So in other words, you, you tied it into something everybody can identify with. They're using credit cards. Yeah. I noticed I, I went over to your Zug.com site today, and I was looking at things there that are current. And all of them are the kind of things that are dealing with what's happening right now. Yeah. So you have Twit of the Week up there, for example. And then you're, there's one called Take Back the Beep when you're talking about the answering machine. And all of these things are immediately identifiable. Yeah. So, so I can relate to you. I'm going, yeah, I sign my credit cards all the time, so I'm nodding my head. And then I thought, well, I wonder if I started signing them differently, would anybody actually notice? Because they never seem to actually look. So I, I identify that. So that's the first thing I want to comment on is I see that part of the success came from you doing something different. It was still comedy. It was still in writing. You still were doing what you wanted to do. But you tied it to something everybody could identify with almost instantly. Now, the other thing I heard is you said R, O-U-R. Yeah. Were you doing this with somebody else? Yeah, uh, we've always had a, uh, a, a cast of characters, uh, con contributing writers who work on the site closely with me. And my vision has always been to build one of the great comedy writing teams like uh, mm. Sid Caesar, you know, made yeah. uh, your show of shows. Or the original Mad Magazine had this gang yeah. they called the Usual Gang of Idiots. And I actually have a picture of Sid Caesar and his, his crew right here in my office. So oh, that's, cool. that's, that's always been my goal. And so, yeah, there's very much a we behind this. Um, well, I have to jump in because I know that the people listening are going to want to know, does this guy actually make money doing this? That was the questions and criticisms that Pete, Alan Abel would always get. 
Right. It's like you're getting national attention for a movement to put clothes on animals, for example, which was <laughs> one of his famous ones. Yeah. But it's like, okay, where's where's the money? So I have to ask you, how do you and your website cash in? Yeah, well, I could uh, fast forward in my story to uh, tell you that I went through the uh, the whole dot-com boom and bust, and that was a tremendously exciting time to be alive. I had a comedy show online uh, for a couple of years during that point. And then uh, I found myself unemployed, and I said, you know, I really need to f- figure out how to make a living if I'm going to, you know, succeed in the Internet space. I need to know how to make money at it. Mm-hmm. So I went back and got my, uh, my, my master's in business. I got an MBA and uh, then came back out with a new sense of, okay, I have the creative piece of the puzzle, and now I have the business piece of the puzzle. And slowly, you know, over the next um, five years, was able to put together a business plan for Zug that works. So, yeah, it actually is profitable. We do make money by uh, advertising and other types of uh, Mm -hmm. sponsorships. For instance, the credit card piece I just told you about, we've got tons of credit card companies because that's such such a popular piece around this keyword credit cards. There's many credit card companies uh, who would love to advertise on that because it's got a great targeted readership. So you mean sponsored ads that they actually came, or are you talking about Google ads or both? Both, both. Uh-huh. Uh, we'll run Google ads on most of our pages, and then for select uh, pieces which are very targeted in a niche like that credit card piece, we'll have exclusive sponsors. I noticed that on your Zug.com site you have the Google ads way at the top. It's like a banner above your banner. Yeah, And there's controversy over that because some people think, well, if people click on it, they're leaving your site. What's your take on it? Have you found that it, it just makes money for you or people leaving the site? Or do you have any research or statistics on that at all? Uh, I've seen those ads uh, in that position on a few very prominent, very successful sites. Um, mm-hmm. So I'm not too concerned about that. What I think more about, Joe, is like how do we get those ads in a more effective position because I think mm-hmm. the one at the top of the page my bigger concern is it's easy to ignore yes and for most ads as you know especially Google ads you don't get paid unless people click on them so uh, what we recently did was reformatted all our article pages so that we now insert a small 468 by 60 ad after the text of the article and before the comments so as you as a user are going through, you see an ad, which we hope is not intrusive, but rather serves as kind of a visual break between the main article and the, uh, the comments mm-hmm. underneath. But, you know, that's great real estate because it's right there, uh, and, you know, your, your eye has to scan over it. Yeah, well, I'm very impressed, and your site looks very clean. It's very user-friendly, and it's very fast. Thank and you. before I forget, I want to acknowledge something, so I want to make sure everybody heard this that even though you've been a comedy writer, you actually took time out and went back to school, studied business, got a degree in it, came back out, and then started to understand and build an actual business around your love of writing comedy. Yeah, yeah, I'm really serious about it. (laughs) Yeah, I can hear you're very serious, but I want people to really get that this is one of the tricks for success. This is one of the tips is that you realized there was a lack or a weakness or an opening or a need for you to know more, and you went and actually studied it and got a degree. So few people do that. I've got to just point out that's one of the elements of massive success. 
Yeah, that's a great point. And uh, it, it, it was really one of the best things I've done. And most people looked at me like I was insane at that yeah. moment. My parents, I remember saying, you sure you don't want to go back to get a master's in writing or something like that? <laughs> and uh, I said, you know, I talked with some friends who had done it, and they said, no, we think you'll enjoy it. And I did. I really got a lot out of it. It felt great to be learning. And uh, I'm just so pleased that, that I, I made that decision now. Good for you. No, that's very impressive and inspiring. Well, before I go into some other questions, I know that some people were dying to hear, and I would love to hear personally, one of your favorite pranks, maybe something from the book Prank the Monkey before we talk about the Mischief Makers Manual. Sure. Is there something that comes to mind that you really uh, delight in sharing or you're really proud of or there's a lesson behind it from Prank yeah. the Monkey? Well, the, uh, I'll share in honor of the late, great Michael Jackson. We did yeah. a prank uh, while Michael Jackson was still alive mm -hmm. uh, where we staged a fake appearance of Michael Jackson in Boston. Mm -hmm. And this is while he was living in Bahrain. Right, so mm -hmm. uh, we basically hired, in a very Alan Abel-esque fashion, we hired uh, a an actor to play fake Michael, and we play we hired uh, mm -hmm. a small Hispanic midget to play his son Blanket because uh, <laughs> that was the only small man we could find, and uh -huh. um, he wore a blanket over his head the whole time, and then. We, uh, we hired a whole, you know, we had an entourage. I was kind of his handler. I was his producer in a tie with an earpiece. And we had a camera crew, and we had people playing fans. We rented a limo. And the idea was we were going to go around Boston for the night and uh, basically tip off the media that Michael Jackson was in town and see if we could make the papers. Mm -hmm. Well, as it turned out, this was totally unplanned, but that night there happened to be uh, this enormous um, – charity concert going on at this hotel, uh, which was, the headliner was Gladys Knight. So mm. this was like a $10,000 a plate charity dinner, right? And all of the, uh, the, the big wigs from Boston, the mayor of Boston was there. Everybody was there. And I called up the producer and I said, I'm with Michael Jackson. He's in town. He'd love to come see the show. So we had a little back and forth negotiation behind the scenes. <laughs> And it turns out that they actually allowed us to come in, thinking this was Michael Jackson, and they gave us uh, not only free access, but they gave us our own private balcony. Wow. So we had this huge roped-off balcony with this great view of this fantastic concert with Gladys Knight. And uh, I remember at one point during the night, we're all incredulous the whole time, like we couldn't believe it was happening, but right. was where, the, where somebody came up and goes, is there anything else I can get you, anything at all? I said, Mr. Jackson would like some nuts, please. It was just the first thing that came to my mind. And like five minutes later, they come back with this enormous bowl of mixed nuts. Uh -huh. And I'm like, being a celebrity is the easiest freaking job in the world. Right. It's awesome. Right. So uh, we, we, made a, uh, we made a substantial donation to the, uh, to the charity gala that night, and we managed to get out without anyone catching us, uh, but the next morning it was all over, the, it was literally on the front page of the Boston papers that uh, fake Michael crashes concerts. <laughs> they figured well, it out, but they didn't know who it was. Well, th this raises a question I hear all the time when I talk about pranks, or I mention Alan Abel or P.T. Barnum or even the lotto hoax that I was involved in, and that's the legality of all of this. You're doing this for a living, and you just impersonated or arranged to have Michael Jackson there. Um, what's what is your take on that? I don't know the law behind it, but how are you? 
in short, how the hell are you getting away with all this? Yeah, we, uh, we, we have some excellent legal counsel who <laughs> advises us from time to time. Mm-hmm. Um, but we try to uh, always check in and say, okay, you know, a lot of these things are calculated risks, but mm-hmm. how, uh, you know, how, how serious is the risk? It's been really tough, I'll be honest, to find good attorneys who can work with us because a lot of attorneys are so risk-averse that they just say, you know, we can't do anything with you, you shouldn't do this, period. And so we need attorneys who can understand we're going to do this, uh, (laughs) so please advise us on kind of, you know, what's the worst case here and, and how could we, you know, limit any legal liability. But in that case, as I recall, you know, the only... Uh, entity who really would have had a case was probably Michael Jackson, and we figured he was uh, probably a little busy at that time and wasn't really. <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't going to notice. They only missed out on nuts anyway. Yeah. How how did you come up with the money to make a contribution? You said you made a sizable contribution. Was that real? Oh yeah, yeah, of course, yeah. In fact, this, the prank started out with um, getting a credit card in Michael Jackson's name. I do a lot of these credit card pranks. Uh-huh. And one of the tricks I used to use was you can call up any credit card company and have them add an additional card holder to your account, right? Uh-huh. You just say, give me a card holder, and then they say, what's the name? And then you can make up the name of anybody you want. Oh, my. Um, and so I just said Michael Jackson, and they, you know, a few days later they send me a credit card in Michael Jackson's <laughs> name. So that's how we were able to go around town and convince everyone this was Michael Jackson because it had his name on it, and we were using it to book hotels and all this stuff. I so, see. The night of the uh, of the uh, of the <laughs> event, I just gave them Michael Jackson's credit card, and they ran it through. It was a working credit card. It went to my account and yeah. uh, withdrew the money. So it went that, to a good cause. It went to a good cause, and you had a great time. Well, uh, I just want to tell everybody, Prank the Monkey is a hilarious and educational book. It's written superbly well. It's one of my favorites. I wrote about it probably in 2007 when it came out on my yeah, blog. Thank you for that. You're very welcome. But I, I found the book on my own, didn't know you at the time. I just love it and still do today. Now, of course, you have a new one out, which is more designed for kids, as I understand it, 8 and up, which 8 and up means it includes me at 55. <laughs> and it's called the Mischief Maker's Manual. What is the intent behind this? Kids are already rambunctious. What are you trying to teach them? Yeah, we um... – we were we were coming up with ideas uh, for the the next book, uh, my agent and I, and, and and I said, you know, nobody has ever written the definitive uh, reference guide to pranks and practical jokes. Think about it. Nobody's mm-hmm. ever compiled all the best stunts from, you know, childhood mm-hmm. and beyond and put them into one kind of encyclopedia of pranks. And uh, I said, that's what we have to do. We have to own the pranking space. <laughs> and so we, so I wrote this book, uh, Mischief Maker's Manual, and it really is meant to be the definitive reference guide to pranks and practical jokes. Um, and I actually modeled it after. Were you a scout, Joe? Did you do the? Oh, absolutely. Scout? Yes, I was. So I modeled it after uh, the scouting manual. And you know that you start off in scouts as a, a tenderfoot, I think, but a yeah. sort of a low rank, and then as you work through all of the exercises in your manual, you learn your knots, you learn mm-hmm. how to build a boat, kill a grizzly bear, whatever you learn. Yes. Then as you go along, you, uh, you check off your little activities and you slowly earn these badges and rank. So this is uh, either a parody or a tribute of the Boy Scout manual. 
<laughs> where you start out um, as a lowly second-class mischief maker when you open the book. Uh, yeah. And then as you work your way through, you start off with very simple mischief like uh, short-sheeting a bed. And then by the end of the book, it's really like massive pranks and hoaxes we're teaching the kids like how to fake an alien landing or how to get on the local news. And we're really teaching kids these things. Um, so it's been a lot of fun. So many kids have, uh, have joined the program and are doing these, these pranks and uh, stunts from the book, and it's been really rewarding and fun. Well, I think you've got to put everybody in the nation on high alert because they never know what kids are going to do something like an alien landing in the backyard. <laughs> so th this is going to make everybody more aware, which is probably a good thing, because I think awareness is part of the metaphysical awakening that needs to happen. But I, yeah. I am impressed with what you're doing. You write a lot. You've got these two successful books. Your website is one of the longest, it is the longest running humor website at zug.com. Um, how do you produce so much? What's your daily routine like? What's, what's helping you get this done and to be so successful at it? Um, that's a great question. I, I, uh, I have actually a very disciplined uh, lifestyle, and it hmm. involves getting up uh, <laughs> most days at, you know, 4.30, 5 o'clock in the morning. Really? And now I thought you were going to just stop and say it involves getting up. It involves getting up, right. Yeah, every day you get up you know, at some point. <laughs> but really, 4.30 or 5 in the morning. Now that, yeah, that's... I get up really early, um, and then I'll work until probably 6 o'clock at night, something like that. But, wow. Uh, you know, in the morning, it's uh, answering email. will take the first couple hours. I, I have two kids, so we can get them up, take them to school. But then I do I actually do meditation. I'm a big, big believer in uh, meditation, and I spend half an hour in the morning in half an hour at night uh, doing my meditation practice. Now, what, let me interrupt. What, what kind of meditation do you do if you're doing it twice a day? Um, there's really no, uh, no hocus-pocus to my meditation. I, uh, mm -hmm. the, the basic idea behind my practice is to uh, try to sit quietly, calm the mind, still the mind if possible, and observe the mind. So, um, wow. Most people, I think, when they when they try meditation, find that the mind is so noisy at all times, right? It's like mm -hmm. the monkey mind, constantly chattering and jumping around that they can't stick with it. Um, but I think that's part of meditation is that you are constantly um, watching your mind in that state of noisiness. But what you're trying to do is lift yourself above it so that you can kind of see, observe your mind, watch how it works and watch how it operates. And this, to me, Joe, this is the fundamental discipline, um, for my success anyway, mm -hmm. is meditation. Because once you start to really watch your mind and learn how your mind works, then slowly you can start to see all of the things that you tell yourself every day or that your mind tells you uh, that aren't necessarily true. This goes back to changing reality, right? This goes yeah. back to looking at the reality you create for yourself um, through the messages your mind tells you, and, you know, consciously reprogramming them when you don't like those messages or that reality that you have. So meditation is really, really important for me. I hear that. And uh, I, this is surprising because I expected you to be having a, you know, uh, mental conversations with Sid Caesar or Fred Allen or Jack Benny or some of the great comedians in the past, but instead what you're doing is becoming incredibly disciplined and self-aware. Yeah. 
um, my favorite line about meditation is, meditation is not what you think. And I always pause because I want people to reflect on the line. Meditation is not what you think, meaning whatever you think meditation is, that's wrong. And then if you're thinking during meditation, well, that's not meditation. But observing the meditation and observing the thoughts and so forth is a way to separate from them and actually is very empowering. Yeah. But if you get you're doing this twice a day. Well, what about exercise, diet? Do you say you work till 6, but there must be you've got two kids, you got a wife, there must be some sort of balance here. Yeah, yeah. Well, you know, the joy of working for yourself is that you can uh, kind of set your own schedule. So I do fit in exercise a few times a week. Uh my wife and I have a pretty uh strict diet as well. We really stick to uh mostly, you know, greens. We we eat tons of salad. Salad is like our big thing. Every meal we'll have a huge hmm. salad as sort of the entree. Mm-hmm. Um and uh all of that together, to me, is kind of this holistic way of living um, that I know is not what you normally would expect from a comedy writer. Right. But it's really worked for me. It's really made me such uh, a happier and more successful person than I was. Um, Have you ever written about breatharians? I don't know about the breatharians. A, breath- a breatharian, since we're talking about diet briefly, I wanted to point out that there's actually people who don't eat at all. And they do this for long periods. Uh, when I was in Bermuda recently, I met a breathar- a former breatharian. She's uh-huh. gone back to food. But she went for 14 months with no food, no coffee, no tea, just water. Wow. And there are people who are breatharians who say they've done it for decades. Wow. And I'm only pointing this out for you, one, because I think it's so profoundly curious. Yeah. Two, it's a mind shifter because yeah. most people that re- worship reality are going to say, nope, you need food where here's, here's a paradigm shift. Here's a group of people who are saying they're not eating food and we don't need it. And then I'm also telling it to you about it because it may end up being one of your next articles or books or something on your Zug.com site. That's a really a great um, – that would be a great stunt, yeah, to try to become a, a breatharian. Yeah. For... yeah, I want to follow that one. If you go and do that one, tell me about it. I might join you in the process, and it can be a, a Mr. Fire and Sir John approach to a breatharian. I did a, a thing. I did a thing earlier this year uh, called the the natural um, the master cleanse. Or oh, I, see, I saw it on your website. Yes. Yeah, and uh, you basically drink this lemonade, which is made of maple syrup and lemon juice and cayenne pepper, and yes. that's it for ten days. No mm. food, just this lemon drink. And uh, you know, I wrote about it for the website, and I wrote about it in a very funny way, and I kind of made some asides into getting um, spiritual enlightenment from it. But I really feel that I did. I really feel that I came out of that not having eaten for ten days mm-hmm. um, with some really profound insights, and they're difficult to translate into words now, mm-hmm. but you know, I made lots of notes as I was going along, and I really did feel a sense of kind of cosmic connectedness that I don't feel in the everyday uh, you know, days when I'm eating. Oh, th- this is fascinating. Goodness, John, we're going to run out of time, and I've got so much more to ask you. Let me race through a couple questions, if you don't mind here. Um, one is, you, you talked about meditation and all of that. Do you do visualization? Do you have some sort of imagery, or is that part of your meditation, or is that separate, or do you do it at all? Yeah, I think that goes back to the goal setting. I mean, I don't usually use that in meditation. Mm -hmm. I do use that when, uh, you know, I'm trying to achieve something. For instance, right now with Mischief Maker's Manual, we're uh, we're in talks to do a TV show. 
So, you know, we're meeting with folks out in Los Angeles about um, turning this into a TV show. And so as part of that, I do, you know, make it a practice to say, okay, here's my goal. I really want this to become a TV show. Mm. And trying to use all those great visualization visualization techniques and, you know, like Napoleon Hill, Think and Grow Rich, and The Mm -hmm. Secret, your your books, and uh, really, you know, just saying to myself, this is what it will look like, this is how it will be, and this is what I want to make happen. Well, that's awesome. Well, on a different level, how did – gosh, it's got to feel like I've made a sudden right turn, but it's still talking to you, and you are a comedy writer. I want to know, how do you write comedy? Can you give somebody a, a few pointers so that they can lighten up their blogs, their emails, their websites, their writings, their books, whatever they're doing, or just their conversation? Maybe their, their thoughts. How does a comedy writer think? How can you – teach us or me how to write better comedy, more humor? Um, I, I can come up with three quick tips off oh, the good. top of good, my head. Good, good. Um, the first thing is you really have to make sure that the, the fundamental premise is funny. I think that's what makes for the funniest pieces. So that goes back to the, you know, let's talk about the credit card prank. Hmm. Thinking about somebody signing Shamu to credit card receipts, it's kind of inherently yeah. amusing just picturing that. So when you start with an inherently amusing concept, it's much easier to write a very funny piece around that. Mm-hmm. Um, the second tip is um, you really have to work hard to, th- to pack in a lot of jokes in a small amount of space. Mm-hmm. So, and this is especially true in writing for the web. Um, you know, for each paragraph that I'll write in an article, you know, and you need short paragraphs of maybe two to three sentences, you, you really need at least one of those sentences to have a good joke and, if possible, Mm-hmm. All three should have, mm-hmm. should have a joke. Not all the jokes work, so then you're sort of playing the odds. Um, and then I guess the third thing is just practice. You know, mm-hmm. the, the, I think I um, improved as a comedy writer uh, more than any time in my life was when I decided to start doing a daily blog. And this was back in, I think, 2001. I said, I'm just going to start writing every day. And before that, I'd done it weekly or I'd kind of, you know, Mm-hmm. here and there, and do, just the discipline of doing it every day, again, 90% of the battle is just showing up, just doing it again and again, day in and day out, really does make you better, especially as a writer. Those are great tips. Well, I want to encourage everybody to go to zug.com, which is Z-U-G.com. I want to, everybody to read Prank the Monkey and, of course, the new book, Mischief Maker's Manual. And, John, is there a couple of resources on learning how to write comedy or a really great book that influenced you, whether it was a how-to, a biography, or, you know, something else? Anything come to mind or a couple of resources for us? It's a good question. Um, I think uh, probably the most useful book for me was called um, Comedy Writing Step-by-Step. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to my bookshelf right now okay to find it and you can fill for 30 seconds while i find the author it was written by a former writer for the carol burnett show oh really well that's uh, comedy writing step by step sounds familiar but i don't know it offhand but i want everybody to go to zug.com www.zug.com where'd the name zug come from uh we like to say it stands for zug is utterly great and here is the name of the book, Comedy okay. Writing Step-by-Step, Step, How to Write and Sell Your Sense of Humor by Gene Parrott, P-E-R-R-E-T. That is an older book. That book came out, uh, I read it in the 70s, I bet. Yeah, correct. Or, or 80s. Yeah, it is old. I remember it well. 
It's well, a before classic. we, it's a classic. Yes. Yes. It's a classic. Are you a fan of the old comedy writers like Fred Allen and some of those early guys? Well, as I said, I have uh, I have Sid Caesar on my wall. Yeah. And, uh, we have a number of other comedy icons as well to keep us inspired. This is all about the vision board and keeping yourself surrounded by images of what you want to be, right? That's we've got, uh, mm-hmm. we've got uh, George Burns and Gracie Allen. We've got mm-hmm. the Carol Burnett Show. We have Walter Matthau and Jack Lemmon, uh, the Marx Brothers, the original Saturday Night Live cast, and, and the Sid Caesar. And these Is are the, Norman these are people Cousins who keep up me company there? every day. Is Norman Cousins on the wall? I'm afraid Norman Cousins is not, sorry. Well, tell me about Norman Cousins, though, because a lot of people may not know who he is, but he did some study on laughter, and it might be worth, uh, that I know you know about, so it might be worth talking about it for a moment. Yeah, um, Norman Cousins, it, it, was this, uh, it was as a layman in 1970s, and he was diagnosed with this autoimmune disease. And he had a theory, which was if stress uh, would worsen his condition, that's what all the doctors were telling him, you know, avoid stress, uh, then he thought positive emotions could improve his health. So he put himself on this uh, regimen of watching funny videos every day. And, of course, this was before YouTube. So he, uh, he got the whole library of candid camera uh, TV shows and just started watching these one mm-hmm. a day, laughing for an hour a day. And uh, ultimately his disease went into remission. And he wrote this paper on an experience for um, the New England Journal of Medicine and was really the founder of what today we would call whole person care or holistic mm. care. And, uh, and, and I believe strongly, Joe, that you know, laughter really is important for mental and physical well-being. And plus it just feels good, right? It feels yep. good to laugh. Yep, it does. Well, Let's you're laugh certainly... together. Let's close this with a little <laughs> laughter. What do you say, Joe? <laughs> and it's easy to do we didn't even give ourselves a reason or a joke ah, uh, you don't need one there you go well that's a good meditation there's people that actually practice the laughing meditation that's one you can do right now i've been talking to Sir john hargrave who gives me the uh the, the comedy's laugh track here as i go out and his website is Zug.com. His books are Prank the Monkey and Mischief Maker's Manual. I would go and get on his list to, uh, to stay up to date with what he's doing. He's got a Zug monthly newsletter. It's on the website at Zug.com. John, thank you for making time. I'm sorry. Sir John, thank you for making time. People only call me sir when they say, sir, get out of the way. <laughs> but for you, you've earned it. You wouldn't pay the money. Uh, any last-minute thoughts, comments, takeaways, quotes, anything you want people to leave as we uh, finish this up? Only that everyone should buy every book that Dr. Joe Vitale has ever written because they're brilliant. <laughs> Let's name them, Joe. Come on, The Attractor Factor. Oh, there's too many of them, but I'll tell Zero you. Zero Limits. Yes. What are you Come looking on, at my and your website? new one, which is? Attract Money Now. Coming out? Um any day now. Any People, day now. That's right. I mean, I'm going to give it away. I want the world to wake up and use the seven-step formula. It's at attractmoneynow.com. John, i got to go, but thank you for doing this for me and for all the Hypnotic Gold members. I look forward to meeting you in person. I look forward to your next stunt, and uh, thank you. Thanks a lot.